The world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and acclaimed author of Take Control of Your Life. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inspire Us. A few years back, I attended a friend's event. My friend Stuart Knight puts on this top 10 event in which he has 10 speakers from across the world come and speak and deliver these amazing keynotes on all kinds of topics. One of his guests was Ani Lala, and I remember listening to her talk and just being mesmerized. She talked about love and relationships in a way that I had not heard anyone talk about love and relationships before, and that resonated with me. Now let's fast forward to this podcast of mine. I had Stuart Knight on my podcast, and I was developing a list of people that I might have on my podcast, and I happened to ask Stuart if he would introduce Annie and I, and he did. And so now I have the pleasure of introducing you to Annie Lala and to what she has to say about relationships in this difficult time. So without any further delay, here is the wonderful Annie Lala. Hello, Annie, and welcome to Inspire Us. I am so happy to have you on the show. I know you as a love and relationship coach, Stuart had you on his top 10 event, and I was absolutely thrilled by your talk, and it really made an impact on me, and I know that it made an impact on everybody else. And I'm just so happy to have you on the show. Oh, it's a delight to be here, Paul. And I want to let you know that you can ask me any question you want. I'll answer it. And sometimes I can be a little abstract and metaphorical. So feel free to get me down into the nitty gritty and into the specifics anytime. Well, you got it. Um, Now that I have you, uh, what should people be doing during these times? So I see this whole global situation as an interesting catalyst and a forcing function. So what, it, what a catalyst does is it doesn't add anything into a, an equation, a chemical equation or a chemical um, process. It just facilitates and speeds up what was already going to happen. That's what a catalyst does. Mm. And so I see this situation in the world as speeding up personal growth and development at the individual level and in relationships. So as a love coach, I'm working with a lot of couples who have understandably been going through conflict during this time. And... What I've noticed is the issues that I've been working with couples all along for the last 10 years, it's the same issues coming up with the new clients coming on and the couples that I'm working with during the pandemic, but they're coming to a head. They're, they're being catalyzed and it's a forcing function for all the stuff that they were kind of squinting at that bothered them about their partner or about the way their relationship works. They can't squint at it and sort of ignore it anymore. It, it's exacerbating what was already the case in couples. So couples who are really in love and have been working on their shit for a while, they're doing super great during the pandemic. It's not causing drama. It's actually bringing them closer together. Hmm. The couples who've been avoiding kind of busy at work, tending to the kids and not really working on their primary dynamic and really expressing their needs and wants and sharing what's working and what's not working and making that relationship 
growth development work a priority. They're the ones that are struggling the most because what the global pandemic is doing is it's highlighting and polarizing the already existing differences between the, the partners in a relationship. And so it's it's almost like a caricaturing what would normally be, oh, that thing irritates me. Well, now it's irritating me so much because we're in the same house for 10 days on end and I can't get any escape. There's no place to distract myself that I have to speak up now. So all the conversations that were being avoided are now unable to be avoided. And so even though it looks like there's more drama, I, as a love coach, am actually kind of secretly excited because it's forcing everyone to get through those conversations And on the other side of those conversations, the couples are either understanding each other better and growing more in love, or they're finding out what they were always going to find out, which is we're way too different. We're not aligned in our vision and we're not a right match. So it's facilitating what was already going to happen in the relationship. So what this is really doing then, it is waking people up to, to deal with what they had to do. So is it a great opportunity, this, and you, you say it is for the couples who want to have things work out, is this a great opportunity for them having these open discussions with their significant other? Absolutely. And what I've noticed is we're in a time of a lot of aloneness and solitude and isolation. And so actually more than ever, we need support. And more than ever, we're not getting that from our friends and our social interactions. So there's a lot of room for like the coaching industry, therapy, counselors, We need support. And so I encourage people who are working through stuff to get support, whether it's an official therapist or a coach or a marriage counselor or just a really good family member or friend that can hold a third position. Because often uh, a couple, they can see each other's blind spots. Like I can see my husband's blind spots perfectly. I could write an essay on them and he could write an essay on mine. But every couple creates an organism or an entity And when I'm working with a couple, I'm not just working with one partner and the other, I'm working with the relationship entity and it has its own blind spots. There's a blind spot that every couple, both of the partners share a blind spot and that's what's causing their conflict. So when they have a third person, like a coach, it helps them see what they're both missing that is contributing to the ongoing conflict. Because I specialize in recurrent conflict with couples who are in love. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes just having a third person participate in a conversation helps um, helps get each partners to pop up to the next level and see that there's a version of reality that's beyond either of theirs that they're quarreling over. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, yeah, having a third party is always a good idea because if you're trapped right in the conflict, oftentimes emotion takes over, right? And you can't clearly see what other people, a third party could see. So it's really a great way of having someone examine the big picture and help people to work out through the difficulties, right? Yeah. And it's about what you said, the emotion comes in. Emotion is really what runs the interpersonal dynamics, right? Relationships are negotiations of emotion. And so it's negotiation between, like if you're walking past someone in a crowd, you negotiate around them, ideally to not hurt them or step on their toes and to get where you're going. So it's a dance, the negotiation. So during this time, couples are learning to negotiate their needs and their baselines and like how much noise they can tolerate, how much alone time, how there's always one partner I've noticed that is a little more conscientious around not getting the virus. 
and one partner that's a little more relaxed. And normally in everyday life, okay, one's a little more germophobic or OCD. But during this life and death kind of corona scare, it polarizes the couple and it turns one into the paranoid. Every surface has coronavirus and we have to like wipe down the Amazon boxes before they come in the house. And then there's one person who's like, oh, come on, you're being overreactive. You're, you're taking this too seriously. And it polarizes them. So it exacerbates the difference. And so a lot of the conflict that I'm helping couples work through is these one's more conservative and one's more relaxed across many domains, not just getting the virus. Right. And that's been a long time irritation to both of them. But now it's like, you're driving me fucking crazy. You're driving me crazy. <laughs> so we got to talk about it now. Right. And that's a healthy way of really approaching uh, the relationship is just to, to sit down and talk about these things, right? Yeah. And for some people who grew up in a young childhood environment, we're talking about their feelings or their needs and their wants were not rewarded, was not encouraged, and actually got them into trouble. They really struggle. These types, and I'm actually one of these types, they struggle to represent their frustrations, their anger, their needs, their wants. They struggle at a very fundamental level to self, to say, I'm here, here's what I need, here's what I want. The whole selfing game is difficult. They're better at othering. They're good at tracking other people's needs and wants and accommodating them. But during this pandemic, it runs out. Your sort of martyrdom ability to just give, give, give and tolerate runs out. And so you get conflict. So there's always one person in every successful relationship, one person that's good at selfing, saying, here's what I am, who's who I am, here's what I want, here's what I need, and expressing it. There is a selfer. And there's always a selfer that constellates with an otherer, the more empathic person who's tuned into the relationship and what the other person's needs and everybody else's needs. There's a selfer and an otherer. There is a me and a we, and they're both guarding two different sacred polarities. Both meing and weing are important for long-term in love relationships because true love is about equal amounts of connection and integration and all cuddled up and looking to each other's eyes and equal amounts of separation, separateness, individuation, and differentiation. And so it's like a shoreline. It's like an ebb and flow of together, apart, together, apart. Remember the relationship is an organism it's an entity. The relationship breathes. In, in breath, we're together. Out breath, the two partners are apart. And so most relationships, a lot of their tension is over one fighting more for wehood. Let's be together. Let's share in the middle of a fight. Let's hug and make up. And there's one person standing for the individual separate self, mehood. And both are sacred polarities. And you mm. need to treat both like two wings on one bird or two eyes on one face. They're both equally valuable and important. One can't dominate over the other and they need to find their cadence so that the in-breath and the out-breath of the relationship is equal in measure. Okay. Now, when you do have this conflict, one really wants uh, to, to be heard. The other one wants a little bit of space. W what do you recommend? What do you yeah. tell your clients? I just need some time or, or I just yeah. need some space. So what do you tell your clients? Well, I first teach both clients the sacred importance of both aspects together and apart. Yes. And I help them see that no one would say the in-breath is more important than the out-breath because guess what? One without the other and you're dead. Right. So I get them to agree that they're both equally important and I work on that till they philosophically get it. Then I show them how they were perfectly matched for each other and how you picked a partner who's very good at protecting the idea of separate individual selfing 
and one person that's really good at guarding connection, integration, communion. Okay. So it's perfect that you're together. Now, when you come together and during conflict, one during conflict tends to want to lean in and get the other person to commune with them. Let's hug and make up. Let's talk. I just want to be more connected because when they're feeling distressed or scared or dysregulated in their nervous system, they lean in. The other person, when they're feeling scared, distressed, or dysregulated in their nervous system, they tend to lean out. In attachment theory, they loosely call this the anxious, the one that's leaning in, and the avoidant, the one that leans out during conflict. Mm -hmm. And they're both natural responses. Now, the thing I tell clients is I I have them notice in their body what it feels like when their partner does the thing that they don't like. So either their partner is leaning in too much and it's getting all up in their business. See that feeling in your body of feeling overwhelmed, intruded, engulfed, that feeling that feels like a trespass, that feeling, feel how uncomfortable it is in your body. Okay, great. Grab that feeling and copy paste it to a clipboard in the sky and then paste that feeling down into your partner. That's what your partner feels when you say, I just need some space. I need to go for a walk. I don't want to talk to you right now. The feeling that you have in your body when your partner runs away during conflict and doesn't want to talk, that terror or overwhelm or abandonment feeling that you get as the person who's anxious or the we person tends to feel abandoned or unloved or panicked when their partner shuts the door, goes for a walk, closes the conversation. That panic and terror and overwhelm you have in your body, copy that to a clipboard in the sky. That level of distress is what your partner is feeling when you chase them around the house saying, I just want to talk about this. Can we talk for five minutes? Can you hug me? Can you tell me everything's going to be okay? Once I get them both to realize that that awful, dreadful feeling in their body is the same feeling in both of them, but for different reasons, one feels terrified by being abandoned. The other one feels terrified from feeling trespassed and engulfed and like they're all up in your business. And it comes from different attachment wounds. If you have abandonment models and imprints from your childhood, you're anxious. If you had too too much of an engulfing, overwhelming parent that was always in your business, you had no boundaries and they always trespassed physically or emotionally, then you have a terror of being engulfed by your attachment figure. And so they're both important and sacred. And once you learn that you're once I, I used to chase my husband around when he did, we got in a fight, I would chase him around. I'm like, talk to me. I want you to hug me. <laughs> and when I realized that he was running away in terror and that the terror he was having is the same terror I'm having as he runs, like that we're both suffering, then I realized, oh my God, I do not want to terrify my partner. I So I teach each, each person in the couple, the person who's the anxious, the weir, the otherer who's always um, trying to commune, I teach them technology of regulating their nervous system so that they're not using their partner to make them feel safe. It's our job as a grown adult human in relationship to generate safety in our body using breathing techniques and uh, meditation and different kinds of visualizations so that you're not a burden on your partner. Hey, will you make me feel safe and tell me everything's okay? Now, it's it's normal for you to want your partner to do something to make you feel safe. Because as a child, your attachment figure, your parents, that was their job to make you feel safe when you had a boo-boo or you fell down and to Mm. soothe you. When you fall in love with someone, all your attachment patterns port right over to your romantic partner unconsciously. And so our nervous system treats our romantic partner 
as the person who's supposed to do the thing that makes me feel safe. So it's totally understandable that we would want our partner to say or do the thing, either hug us and tell us everything's okay, or leave us alone so we have 20 minutes to cool down. Whatever the thing is that makes us feel safe, we assume our partner should do it. That makes sense. But actually, as a grown adult human, your job is now to take back that dependence on an attachment figure and become your own internal attachment figure. And I teach my clients how to become an internal adult that takes care of their internal child and tunes into what they need and calms their internal child down so that it's not a burden on their partner. So I basically teach both partners how to do the thing that's most counterintuitive. So the person who's always trying to connect during conflict, Mm -hmm. I teach them how to go take a walk, take a breath, move away from their partner and practice generating safety without their partner having to do or say anything. The person who's always trying to run away and avoid conflict and needs to take space and alone time, I teach that partner how to empathically attune to the hungry pain of their romantic partner who is feeling left and abandoned. And I have them regulate and stay in connection rather than run away. So I teach the person who runs away how to stay in connection Mm -hmm. and care for the other person's feelings, how to empathize. And I teach the person who's always empathizing and wanting affirmation how to affirm to themselves the relationship is fine and safe and to generate their own sense of okayness without burdening their partner to rescue them. Well, and that sounds like it would really work because, yeah, both partners are working together. And I think and, uh, and it's perfect because you're cross. You literally chose someone who does the thing that you don't know how to do. Right. So you can actually learn by becoming a student of what your partner does. My husband used to always run away and shut the door when he was upset. And after, over time, I learned how to not need him to rescue me. So I would watch. Oh, he would just say, I need to take 10 minutes and he'd leave in the middle of a fight. So I started practicing, hey, hon, I need to take 10 minutes and I would leave. And then I would go do something that was nourishing and relaxing. And he could handle that because I learned it from him. Right. right. So it flips after a while. You cross train your partner to do the thing that's native to you. But basically in a fight, you want to do what's counterintuitive, what's the opposite of your instinct. And that's what will take you in the development path towards your actualization and growth. You basically fall in love with your favorite teacher. Yeah. And we all kind of approach our relationships from, uh, I suppose, our past experiences and Mm -hmm. and who we've become, right? What are some of the things that you are approached about the most during the pandemic? Is it it because they're together or or is there something different? Let's see. Well, during the pandemic at the start, it was the issue around how much caution to have around protecting family from the virus. People who live together, that was the main point of contention, but that became the point of contention that all of their unresolved issues would smuggle themselves into, Mm -hmm. right? When you have a fight about the cap on the toothpaste, it's not the cap on the toothpaste. It's about you were mean to my mom on Thanksgiving. You always leave the dishes in the sink. It's a whole bunch of things that get smuggled in from the past as aggression around the cap left off the toothpaste. So every fight actually entails all other fights. It's holographic. And so when a couple brings a fight to me, whatever it is, I keep dismantling it and lovingly pushing deeper and trying to find the root cause. And when we get down to the root cause, what I found is all fights are basically the same pattern, okay? It, 
people think of fights as like two persons with a, a sword and we're right. having a duel and one of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose. Right. We right. think of fights that way. But actually, the way I see fights is two partners linked arm in arm and they're both fighting a third entity. That's the enemy. And the third entity is a misunderstanding. All fights seem to root when you distill it down, come down to some misunderstanding. And that's the enemy that we need to defeat together, arm in arm. Me and my partner need to investigate this weird conflict and see what is the misunderstanding that is having us forget that we're in love, that we're the most important people to each other and have this drama. And I've noticed that in all fights between romantic couples, the misunderstanding is always the same one, no matter what the fight. And it's some form of, I don't feel seen, heard, respected. I don't feel loved. It's some form of I don't feel loved or respected, seen, heard. But really, they're all a form of I don't see, feel loved. Right. Once you realize that every fight is about I don't feel seen, loved, understood, or respected by my partner, then when they say, you put the cap off the toothpaste again, I'm not, I'm not tracking the cap on the toothpaste. This is my partner saying, you don't care about me. You don't love me. You don't hear me. You don't understand that I don't like toothpaste all over the counter. And so I speak to that, not the cap. Oh, honey, I left the cap off the toothpaste. You must feel like I don't, like it doesn't matter to me that you're, there's toothpaste all over the counter. You must feel like I don't care. I want you to know that you're the most important person in my life. I love you more than anything. I apologize that I left the cap off the toothpaste. Here's what I'm going to do to keep it on in the future. It, it just comes out different when it's not about the cap. Right. When you realize it's, Every complaint or criticism is actually a smuggled, I love you, and I know you're better than this, and I'm standing for a greater version of you, the one that puts the dishes in the dishwasher, that leaves the cap on the toothpaste, and I know that you would love that version of you better, and will you take on capping the toothpaste so that we can both live in a house where there's no toothpaste on the counter. If you can take your criticism and complaints and turn them into Martin Luther King, I have a dream speeches where you inspire your partner into the version of themselves that they dream of becoming that you're standing for, which by the way, they hired you to see their greatest version and to stand for you actualizing in that direction. But most of the time we don't do Martin Luther King speech. We bitch and complain and shame, which is more like a WTF what the fuck's wrong with you speech? And people don't respond well to WTF. We respond well to someone saying, I see greatness in you. I know you want to be a tidy house housemate for everyone. And will you, when you put the dishes in the sink, in the dishwasher, I think you actually feel like a better contribution to the family. Can we do that? That works much better to go from zero to hero rather than in the doghouse. And just to get out of the doghouse and you put the dishes in the dishwasher, then you get to zero. Everybody wants to be a hero. So you have to give them a way to be a hero. So what was I talking about here? Um, well, yeah, yeah, we were just talking about uh, the under, what's behind the cap. And it's a lot more than just, it's a messy, it's, it's a messy counter and you left the cap yep. off. Yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love what you said, because when you are with your partner, you're there to support your you're their backup. You, uh, you're right next to them. And what you're saying is about building people. And a lot of people, they just need to be reassured, right? Uh, children need to be reassured that they're loved. And adults need to be reassured that they're loved. And when you are with a partner, you've made a commitment. And 
Well, yeah, no commitment, but I just want to go back a bit. You said they need to be reassured that they're loved. Yes. And part of what I teach my clients is to generate their own belief in their lovability, independent of how batshit crazy their partner is acting. Right. Okay. So I teach my clients to look for all the smuggled I love you's coming from their partner so that they build a case. It's like, I want them to create a whole bunch of defense lawyers that live in their psyche or not defense lawyers, PR agents. They live in their imagination. And I have all these PR agents that live in my imagination and they do good PR for my husband when he's acting like an ass, when he's acting unloving and insensitive or unappreciative. My, my defense lawyers or my PR agents have been gathering evidence through the week of how many moments he's gone out of his way for me, things he's done to show me affection and love. And they have a whole caseload of evidence to bring to the court when I'm running a story called, he just did that. He doesn't love me. Then the, the PR agents and the defense lawyers come to the fore and they go, actually, look <laughs> at all the evidence we have. And it's our job to generate I'm lovable and proof that our partner loves us rather than having it be our partner's job to prove that they love us. Like if I don't feel loved right now, it's not because my partner's doing something wrong. It's because it's a crisis of my evidence tracking and imagination. It's, it's a crisis over here. Because most of the time we're trying to use our partner to make us feel loved when we don't love ourselves or we're ashamed of ourselves. And it's not your job to make your partner feel loved. It's your job to remember that you're lovable. It's a much more subtler enterprise. So most of my work is helping individuals generate strong senses of self-esteem and transcend their inner conflicts around shame. See, I work at the individual level so that their self-esteem is rising. So when my husband is acting angry and frustrating and critical, this is what I'm running. I don't like this. He's irritating me. I don't like the feeling. And I know he loves me. He loves me more than he's angry. And my husband has said that many times in conflict. I'm really mad right now. You did X, Y, Z. I'm seven out of 10 mad. And I love you more than I'm angry. But what the hell, man? We can handle our partner's complaints and frustrations if we know they love us more than they're angry. So it's important to say it. Honey, I love you more than I'm frustrated. I love you more than I'm irritated. Say it explicitly. And it's my job to generate it. So my, my husband first had to say it for me to hear it and feel it. And then I started to generate it for him, even mm. when he forgets to say it. But that takes some practice. Oh, yeah. And you hit on so many nice things. Yes. The, the expression that I'm I angry like this, but I love you more. And, and it's true. Yeah. Even, even the people you've broken up with and you're not even in a relationship with them anymore. You usually love someone. You never stop loving someone once you start. Right. You may no longer think they're the right match for you, but if you bumped into them on the street, hopefully you didn't leave it so messy that you can be like, wow, hey, like, good to see you. So you love someone, even when you're breaking up, you love them more than you're angry. If that ex-partner, if that person suddenly, I don't know, was in the hospital and said they wanted to see you, you'd still show up. So the truth is you actually love pretty much everyone more than you're angry with them, but we hide it. We act all angry or frustrated and we withhold our love and as a punishment or we put an embargo on it to kind of make them feel scared so mm. that we can manipulate them to do what we want. If we dangle the love, you're not getting the love unless you do the thing. It's much more manipulative. And so 
it's harder to get what you want by saying, listen, I love you. I'm always going to love you. I love you no matter what. And this thing doesn't work. I need you to lock the door when you go to bed at night. It doesn't work. Can we work on that? And then they do it again. And then you keep saying, hey, it doesn't work. Rather than threatening, well, I don't know if this relationship is going to work. Or I don't know if we're going to be able to figure this. You don't threaten the relationship ever. Ever. You just say, hey, I love you. And this doesn't work. We got to change this. Mm. I love you. And this doesn't work. You don't tell your kids, I'm going to... I'm, I'm going to kick you out of the house at seven years old if you don't make your bed. Right. And I don't know why we do that in relationships. You're literally using nuclear weapons to threaten your partner because ending the relationship is like a nuclear weapon. So would you use a nuclear weapon to get your neighbor to lend you the lawnmower? No. So I, I really train my couples not to threaten the relationship at all. If you want to break up, okay, people do. Do it from a moment of deep intimacy and connection. It's much more trustable to do a breakup from, hey, listen, I love you. I support you. I want you to have the most success in your life. We're not a match and here's why. And I want us to do this in a beautiful way. You break up from the moment of most connected and most in love, not in a drama or a fight. It's an unclean, incomplete breakup. If only everybody could communicate the way that you're, you're expressing right now. And I know that you're helping a lot of couples do that. What would you tell couples right now who are in conflict? I, I know that um, people can reach out to you as a relationship coach. And mm -hmm. what should they start to do if they're feeling that anger and, and they want to use these, these weapons against the people that they love? You, you got to stop it, right? Well, stopping it's not something that happens overnight. It's not an insight-driven thing. It's a right. practice. It's like trying to quit smoking. Right? These are ancient habits from our childhood. We're often replicating the behaviors that our parents did to us. And our parents, as amazing as they are, they're fallible. And they're supposed to be the people that love us the most on the planet when we were a kid. So if they did that to us, then that's what love looks like. It doesn't matter what our parents did. That gets imprinted as what love looks like, good, bad, and indifferent. So then we're going to display those behaviors in our romantic relationship because that's what love looks like. Mm -hmm. I tend to see in couples, there's always an angry type, one that's angry and one that goes into fear or distress. Okay. Okay. Often it's loosely related to the avoidant one gets angry and the anxious one goes into distress, but not always. But in a conflict, one goes aggressive and one goes defensive. So tune into whichever one you are, because there's a different game I want to give you. If you're the aggressive, angry, grumbly type, shamey, blamey type, your job, if I was working with you as a client, your work is to breathe and regulate your nervous system when you start to get angry and to get that your anger is your responsibility and nobody else caused it. Right. Okay. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're generating angry because that's the way you handle overwhelm, but your anger is getting put into someone else's space. And you have to ask yourself, you know, you can get angry and yell and scream and blame. Sure. Is it getting you anywhere? Are you actually getting long-term behavior change in your partner? <laughs> if it is, keep it up. If it isn't, when you're ready and you actually want a behavior change, I got all the goods for you. Because at any moment, you can choose between two options. Shudder your upset and grumble onto your partner or your kids. Shudder it out onto them. Rah, rah, rah. Or get the behavior change. You got to pick. You're never going to get both. So at some point, when you're done yelling and screaming after a few years and you just want the behavior to change, then it's a, a different tactical process. 
if you actually want the behavior to change, you have to regulate and get to a place where you're not triggered. So you might want to bookmark, write down the thing you want changed, and you bring it up at a time when their mind is receptive and hospitable to a transformation. Just like a parent has teaching moments, you, you don't want to teach your child if they just dropped their like yummy ice cream cone on the ground and they're about to have a tantrum or a cry, that's not the moment to teach your child. You need to be careful holding things. They can't hear it then. They don't have the synaptic neur neuronal availability to make a new pattern when they're in trauma because they just dropped their ice cream. That's something you bring up in a teaching moment later on when their nervous system is relaxed and they have the resource to create a new pattern. Mm -hmm. So if you want to change your partner or not even change them, upgrade their consciousness so that they're acting more and aligned with their values in mm -hmm. a way that even they would be more proud of. Mm -hmm. If you want to inspire that change, well, you need to inspire it. Shaming and blaming and yelling them into change, you may get them to change for five minutes or a week because they're afraid of you. But do you really want someone to be changing because they're afraid of you? And it's short term because it's driven by shame and terror. If you want a long-term, sustained, intrinsically motivated behavior change, you need to bring it up in a way that has them see why their own life and their own values would be more fulfilled if they took on that behavior and that you would prefer it. You have to sell it to them and market it to them in their own words. Otherwise, why should they do it? People don't do things for your reasons. They do it for their reasons. So mm -hmm. you need to find out their reasons and inspire them with incentives. And you can only do that from a calm, strategic, problem-solving base. So choose. Do you want to grumble and complain and criticize and shame your partner, but not get the behavior change? Which, But it's therapeutic. You might feel better, but you don't get the behavior change. Or do you want the behavior change? I just want them to shift. Right. And once you realize that you just want them to shift, you can get more strategic and you realize, well, what pragmatically is going to work? And it's not shaming and blaming and yelling. It just doesn't work. So that's what I would say for the angry person. That's the coaching I would give them. And I would teach them technologies of breathing when they get overwhelmed and their anger is wanting to come out. Basically, the simplest technology I know is five deep breaths in with double length exhale. You force your breathing into a more calm state and it brings your trigger down under five out of 10. I would recommend five to nine of those deep breaths with double length exhale usually takes everyone out of their lizard amygdala response and fight or flight to a little more calm. Now, if you're the person that goes into defensive and terror and afraid, I would give you the same five breaths to regulate and calm your nervous system, which basically Regulation, calmness, grounding, those are all terms that mean the same thing. They mean generate safety in your body for yourself without using someone else to do it for you, which is the mark of a grown-up to generate intentionally their emotional states and to regulate their states. So the defensive person, what I would say to you is, okay, let's regulate your nervous system. You're in terror. You're feeling defensive, like you're bad and wrong. You're going to get in trouble. So let's get you out of that regressed child response. And let's get you back to grown up. Like no one's going to kill me. It's just my partner yelling at me about the toothpaste cap. Right. But you have to actually time travel from your regressed child nervous system state to the present moment. And the fastest way to time travel from a regressed state to the present moment is through breath, mm. any kind of breath or movement or somatic. It has to be something to do with the body, breathing or movement, Pilates, yoga, anything that brings you into your body, pulls you out of your cognitive loop 
oh no paranoia or what WTF they're bad and wrong. These are all cognitive loops. Mm. You need to be in your body to be in the present moment. So then after you regulate out of your defensive terror, then I would ask you to listen, listen to your partner having their grumble, listen behind the complaint and the criticism and look for the commitment. They're whining and complaining about the cap on the toothpaste or the dishes in the sink, but what is the commitment that's behind their complaint? Mm -hmm. Are they committed to a clean house? Are they committed to you being on time for meetings? Are they committed to something that actually makes you a better person? So the question to ask is the complaint that your partner is making about you, is the complaint, if you did the thing that they wanted you to do, would you be a version of yourself that you're more proud of in the world? Would you love yourself more? And if the answer is yes, then your partner is actually doing the job that you hired them for, which is to emancipate you from your small, defended, unconscious self into your great, actualized, living according to your values self. And so they're just giving you a chance, like a mirror reflecting back an opportunity for you to actualize. They may not have good bedside manner. It would be nice if they could do a Martin Luther King speech. So I help clients with their bedside manner. But I also help the defensive client listen through the criticism and look for the golden nugget of greatness that their partner is actually standing for. Like, I'll turn my partner's complaint into a Martin Luther King speech. My husband's like, you know, oh, you're, you're doing something with our daughter that I don't like. He's just standing for me being a better mother. And he needs a course in bedside manner. But in the meantime, I'm going to look for the golden nugget and upgrade. Right. Wow. A lot of this is is really self-awareness, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, like what tr- what you said, the triggers and uh, the work that it takes to build someone up is not that difficult when you love someone, right? I mean, that that's the person you want to build. That's your that's your mate right there. So uh, yeah, I, I, you want to build them, but you also are going to love them the way the imprint of love got shown to you because that's what love looks like. Right. It's not like we had five sets of parents and some loved us different ways. And then we picked the best one and we go, that's what love looks like. We got one set of parents and however they loved us, good, bad, or indifferent becomes imprinted as what should lo- love should look like. So then we love that way unconsciously. And so, yes, we want to big up, big up our partner and um, show them our appreciation and our gratitude and our love. But we also shame and nitpick and criticize unconsciously with stories that are, oh, we're just trying to improve them or we're just showing them how to do it a better way. But actually it's a taking down of their esteem because maybe that's what our parents did to us and we didn't realize it and we're perpetuating it. So what I learned, you know, there's a research study that says for every one criticism you get from your partner, they need to give you five affirmative compliments just to not reduce your esteem. So for every one grumble, you need five yays Mm. or props Mm -hmm. or kudos, just so that it stays neck and neck and your partner isn't feeling like you don't love them. Right. So that's something to keep track of. Now, what can couples do then? Uh, Is there something, do you and your husband do something weekly uh, to bring out uh, your your thoughts, your feelings, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff? Is, is, Is there something that you do regularly? Yeah. So in most couples, there's one person, usually the more I-centric person, who expresses their frustrations and upsets and needs and wants in real time. They'll just say it whenever it comes up. So they usually don't need a weekly meeting to express because they just say it. Usually the other person, the more communal, empathic person, 
is always trying to make sure everything's looking nice and harmonious and feeling good. And so when they're upset or frustrated, they have a need or a fear or an insecurity, they don't bring it up because they don't want to contaminate the happy space. Mm-hmm. So what I recommend is that every couple have a weekly time, not date night, a special night where they just they express anything that's not being said that week. And it's usually the empath that has the pent up unresolved, like, oh, I was frustrated about this, or I really need us. Can we rearrange the schedule? So blah, blah, blah. They need a weekly time where they know they're going to be heard. The whole purpose of that hour on Wednesday afternoon at six is for them to express what up until then hasn't been expressed. That's the purpose to update their partner on unexpressed information. Mm. It's not a complaint fest. It's not a criticism fest. It's a, hey, partner, there's information that's going on about my feelings and thoughts that I want you to know so that we have more intimacy. And sometimes there's emotions and frustrations there. But the purpose isn't to blame, shame, and criticize. It's to give data. When someone loves you and they know you're hurting, they are always going to take action to stop hurting you. Mm -hmm. Unless, unless, and this is where it gets tricky, unless the action that they need to take to stop hurting you is too scary or painful to them or they don't know how to do it. So- One of the metaphors I like to give couples to help them deal with those moments is I think of a couple as being on a boat and when we fall off the boat and we're drowning and we're basically can't take it anymore, we're angry, we're scared, we're overwhelmed, we're frustrated and we're drowning on the side of the boat and we're yelling at our partner, hey, will you throw me the life jacket? Will you, you, you're on the boat. Will you throw me the life jacket? And our partner does not throw us the life jacket i.e. they don't come and hug us and tell us everything's okay, I still love you. Or they don't give you 10 minutes alone time space to cool down. Whatever it is that they're not doing, not throwing the life jacket. When you're drowning in the water, it feels like your partner is standing on the boat laughing maniacally and going, ha ha ha, I will not save you. Mm. That's what it feels like. But the truth is, the only time your partner doesn't give you what you need the most to feel safe, the only time they don't give it to you is because they're actually not on the boat. They're drowning on the other side of the boat, trying to get a life jacket themselves. You think they're on the boat, but their drowning looks different than yours. Mm. So the only time your partner doesn't give you what you need to feel happy and safe is because they're in some internal overwhelm and they're drowning in their own way because of their own history and past wounding. And so they can't give you a life jacket because they're drowning on the other side of the boat. You can't expect another drowning person to give you a life jacket. And their drowning is going to look different than yours. So don't expect it to look the same. So what I tell the client, the couples, I say, listen, honey, he's drowning on the other side of the boat. He can't help you. So I'm going to teach you how to swim to shore. Okay, here's what you do. We're going to get your breathing down. We're going to get you regulated. We're going to give you a visualization to calm your nervous system and give your young inner self safety. And that's teaching you to get to shore. Maybe if you get to shore, you can get a boat to come help him. But the fastest way to get him to learn how to swim to shore is for you to go first. Don't wait on him to send you a life jacket. No one's coming to rescue you. I'm going to teach you how to swim to shore. And if both partners learn to swim to shore, that's when the relationship takes on a new level of intimacy because no one's burdening the other person with rescuing Now, after both partners know how to swim to shore and they're not leaning on each other like two popsicle sticks, depending on them to make them feel safe, then you can get to a third interdependent level that can look like dependence, 
but it's actually more advanced where when my husband is acting distressed and overwhelmed or angry, I know how to comfort him and give him a life jacket because I know he has one and he can use it. And I don't feel begrudging to help him out this time because we've been through the process of individuating, swimming to shore. And so today I'm just going to, I know he's stressed out, so I'm going to go out of my way to help him. Most people try to do that without making sure both partners have learned how to swim to shore first. That's the enabling codependent dance where, oh, you don't know how to swim to shore? Well, I'll save you. Okay, well, I'll save you this way. I'll enable you this way. That's the codependent leaning versus interdependent is like two twin stars that rotate around each other. They can survive separately, but they're choosing to dance. Codependent is I'm not choosing and I can't survive without you because if you move, I fall. Mm. That's the difference. They look the same on the outside, but on the inside, the difference is the codependent doesn't have a choice. They're literally stuck. The interdependent is autonomous and they're just choosing to dance together. That's a beautiful way of putting it. It really is. And again, it just comes down to understanding yourself and understanding your partner's needs as I see it, right? Yeah, and understanding your own needs and your partner's needs. And for most people, they're good at one over the other. Whoever's good at knowing their own needs, your job is to learn to read the implicit in between the lines needs of your partner because they're not very good at expressing them. So you have to kind of suss them out. Right. The other person, the one who's um, not very good at expressing their needs, but they're very good at tuning into their partners, their job is to become more explicit, standing fiercely more, here's what I need. So the selfer, the one that can say their needs, their job is to become more empathic and otherish. The otherer or the empath, their job is to become more selfing. Right. So right. we, cro- we cross-train. Well, uh, it's a beautiful way of doing, uh, of having a relationship, really. It's really understanding your, your partner and, and yourself completely. And speaking uh, instead of keeping everything inside. And that's, again, everybody needs to be acknowledged. Everybody needs to be seen. And what you were saying earlier about uh, just building people up and, and uh, making them the best people they, they can be is just absolutely beautiful. And I think we need to yeah. do that more. And that transcends every relationship, doesn't it? Every relationship that I think is going to play the highest game of intimacy, connection, and love and create something valuable in the world. You want to see romantic relationship as not a spa where you go to get a massage and just feel good. You want to see a relationship as a crucible for, or a dojo for development and transformation and getting to the next level of your greatness and your potential. It's more like a gymnasium and a dojo than a spa, but it's a bit of both. So I think of your romantic, in true love, your romantic relationship should feel like a sanctuary, a place of refuge, and a trampoline that pushes you towards your dreams in both. But if it's all sanctuary, then you're never going to be inspired to get to your next level. If it's all, you got to be more and more and more, then you're never loved just exactly as you are. So the frame I like to offer couples is you need to love your partner exactly as they are, broken, fallible, crazy, imperfect, full of wounds. You need to love them exactly as they are. And I'll tell clients like, if, their part, if your partner never, ever, ever changed, would you stay with them? And I'll ask them separately. And I, 
and you know, they um and ah, and I basically eventually share with them, listen, until you would stay with them exactly as they are, broken, incomplete, crazy, if you wouldn't stay with them exactly as they are and they would never change, then they're going to feel that. They're going to feel like they're not loved as they are. And funnily enough, they won't have the resource to grow to their next level that you're standing for unless they feel loved exactly as they are. Mm -hmm. So you have to love them exactly as they are first. Then, then you can say, hey, you know what? I love you exactly as you are. I'm not leaving you. Even if you never change, I'm going to be with you. And I have a vision where we do this, this, and this, and you're like this. And I think that this would, this is going to be a version of you that you'll be even more proud of. What do you say? Knowing that you're staying no matter what, that gives them the courage to actualize to the next level. But a lot of us, we go, well, uh, if you don't change this, I'm leaving. That puts them into the terror of abandonment. And then they don't have the energy and the resource and the courage to actualize to the next level. So we actually undermine our partner's ability to grow and change. When someone loves you exactly as you are, a parent loves you or a partner. And they say, listen, I love you exactly as you are. It doesn't matter if you ever get A's in math. It doesn't matter if you ever do art well. It doesn't matter if you ever put dishes in the dishwasher. I'm always going to love you and I'm going to stand for our relationship. And it would mean so much to me if you could put the dishes in the dishwasher. And I think our family would run so much better. Then you'll get the change, but you have to let go of the death grip of manipulation and holding your love at bay until they do the change. You have to let go of your manipulation tools and actually trust in their greatness and their desire to grow and actualize in the direction that you're suggesting. That's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, you're right. If we withhold something, uh, not only are we hurting them, but in the long run, are we not hurting ourselves? Because doesn't the relationship begin to deteriorate and every, it repeats itself. Like, oh, is he going to do this or is she going to yes. do Oh, no. Every, yeah. I think uh, Nicole Tedon actually said, the relationship's intimacy starts to degrade with the first withhold. Every withhold erodes intimacy. Any withhold. And also, when you withhold your love, it's actually a lie. It's actually a complete lie because you haven't stopped loving them. When a parent's yelling at their kid, they love that kid exactly as much then as they do when their kid wins the school contest. They never stop loving their kid the same amount. But why does the kid feel less loved? Because the parents hide the love and let the anger shine more. The truth is, I love you no matter what, and I'm angry, and we need to do this, this, and this. A kid can handle and a partner can handle anger when they know the love trumps the anger. So it's a lie anytime you're saying anything else with your body, your tone, or your words. It's a lie. So stop lying. That's all. (laughs) Stop lying and start loving and expressing. And again, why is it people, why do we hold these feelings inside without talking about them? Is there a fear that uh, we'll be judged by our partner if, if we say something? Like if yeah. we're ups- yeah, it's upset about something, is, is well, that a fear? Well, you know, we, we get imprints in our childhood from our attachment figures, which is our right, parents. Right. And our parents were either receptive to our feelings or not, depending on their mood or their facility or their ability to regulate their nervous system. Maybe they were receptive to our joy and our happiness, but not our anger and our frustration. Hmm. Who knows? So we'll learn, oh, that's not okay in intimate relationship whatever dynamic you played out with your parents, you end up in some way playing out with your romantic partner 
it's more like whichever parent you had to earn love from the most, whichever parent that was, you end up falling in love with someone, whatever gender, you fall in love with someone who replicates the same owie pain, unloved feeling that you got from the parent who you had to earn love from the most. Why? Because it's incomplete. I really wanted my daddy to love me this way and I didn't get that love and I have this owie feeling. So I'm going to go find another person to play that role in the script. So this time when we play our words at the end of the script, I get the yummy love that I didn't get from daddy. So we spend our life chasing that yummy love. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You marry your mom, you marry your dad to complete the script. But if you're aware of this pattern and you're conscious, I knew I was going to marry my emotionally unavailable mom in a man. I knew it. I read all the books. I made sure I found the most extraordinary, smartest, highest consciousness, best looking, emotionally available man who was willing to grow that I could find. <laughs> so I call the shot. I knew I was going to marry the emotionally available. I was never going to marry the devoted, empathic, all your needs are welcome. No, I married Mr. What? You got needs? Well, you better speak up for them. <laughs> so I learned to speak up for them. And I found someone who's committed to personal growth and self-development and who's interested in consciousness. And I called the shot. You can't stop the pattern. You're always going to marry a version of the parent who you had to earn love from. Mm. So just get that. So now that you know that, be conscious and pick the best one, the one that's most likely to, at the end of your life, you get the yummy feeling of love. Oh, yeah, they do love me that way. And I've, I've, I've gotten there with my husband. I've trained him. I've shown him what hurts, what doesn't hurt. And I've, I've gotten to the place where I was like, oh, yeah, the love I didn't get from my mom that I wanted, he's, well, he's not 100%, but he's on route, right? <laughs> yeah. How did you get involved in uh, relationship coaching? I could listen to you all day. What you say just uh, makes so much sense. And and it's, uh, again, the, my mind is going around uh, thinking, yes, it, it is really about open communication and understanding that we are all broken, that we are not perfect. We're imperfect people living in an imperfect world. But when we pick a partner, we pick a partner to support, to, to work with, right. To, to support each other. Isn't that what we do? So how did you get? Yeah. Involved? Yeah. yeah. So we pick a partner for two reasons. One is for sanctuary for support. Right. And one is for them to stand fiercely for our growth and our greatness. Right. We don't pick a partner just to be like bathwater that flows around us and just makes us feel great. We get, we, for a little while, we might like that. Yes, girl but they won't be the one that inspires us to actualize on our dharmic imperative and to fulfill on our potential. We're, ultimately, we will get bored with that and we'll start to feel contempt towards the yes person, the martyr. We won't respect them. And it's hard to stay in love with someone you don't respect. Right. We often have to choose between getting respect or getting approval. Most of us are good at getting one or the other. And so if you're good at getting respect, you have to start learning to get approval. It's usually the I-centered people are good at getting respect because they express their needs and wants, but they don't get approval because they're not accommodating and empathic to others. And the empathic person is usually very good at getting approval. They're always up helping everybody else, but they're not good at generating respect because they don't say no and hold boundaries and say, this doesn't work for me. So we have to learn to cultivate whichever one you're not as developed in. But um, how I got into it is I've been doing this since I was in the school ground. Like, when I was in high school, middle school, there would be fights and skirmishes between friends and 
people they had a crush on. And I was always the person they came to to talk about it. I've been interested in biology, developmental biology, philosophy, psychology, consciousness studies. Like it's just been a passion. And I was an IT consultant for 15 years working in telephone um, IT, Mm -hmm. programming phone software. But the only reason I was a good program manager, project manager is because I would coach all the developers. I would coach people on their relationships. So I've been doing this for as long as I remember. Only about 15 years ago, I realized, man, my dream is to actually help people. That's all I actually do in these other jobs. So I saved enough money from IT consulting, moved to New York. A friend who was a weight loss coach said, you know what, Annie, you're the best coach I know. You love to coach on relationships. Why don't you just become a coach? So I started, I just, I put it out there. I got one client. I started developing my technology. I took a lot of courses in um, NLP, hypnosis, coaching programs, and I honed my skill and I grew, grew by referral. And now I'm a professional online coach. I teach online courses. I have my own practice and I'm, I'm doing really well. And I'm pretty much, the, I'm in the top of my field in terms mm. of conflict resolution. So yeah, I, it's, I think we always do our purpose. We're always doing it. It's the mm-hmm. thing we do that feels so easy. It's like breathing. We can't imagine it would ever make us money. I could never, I never thought I would make money helping people be more in love, but actually when you, when you take the thing that's so easy for you, it's like breathing and you get out of this, I have to work hard to make money and be successful. And you realize when you're aligned with your purpose, it's not hard. Your purpose is something that you're always doing at a dinner party. What do people always come to you for and ask questions about? What do you, what impact do you leave people with when you interact with them? You know, after someone interacts with me, they're not probably going to go save the whales. That's not what I talk about. Mm -hmm. But after they talk to me, they're probably going to be more self-aware and conscious in their romantic relationships or with their kids. That's, that's who I am. That's the impact I leave. And so it's important to figure that out, your purpose, your, the reason you came here into this lifetime and align your value creation in the world with that purpose and make sure that your value creation is fulfilling a need that the world has. If you, if there's a need that the world has and you're creating value and it's the thing that you're good at, that means you're going to get paid well for it. And that's the right combination. And what you're just uh, talking about, so many people I, I know that are going to be listening to this, maybe their calling is still out there, you know, and they're, mm-hmm. they're actually doing jobs that they don't like, or maybe they're not doing a job right now because of the pandemic. But what you're saying is just following your heart and doing what you're good at. And it's, it's not work when you do something that you're joyful about, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That, you know, our, my husband and I actually just opened a coaching school because people are trying to reinvent their careers. And we think coaching is the skill of the future because no matter what career you have, if you're a parent, if you're a friend, coaching, knowing how to support another person through a transition and believe in them and love them until they actualize, it's, it's what everybody wants in a friend, in a partner. And, you know, it's, it's a skill that only amplifies and adds to all your other skills. Even if you work in an office job, they're actually saying that leadership and management in corporate jobs is now becoming coaching. Coaching is what a manager is supposed to do. It's what leadership is, is to Mm. coach another person to their potential. So that's why we are teaching it. And it's, I, I just think people should, it's a great time to pivot 
and create a version of your career that is nourishing and expansive and is the kind of difference you want to make with your life. It really is a good time to do that, isn't it? I mean, we, we are at a time where we, a lot of people have so much time on their hands, but if they can only go deep into themselves and coaching, wow, what a great thing for people to do. How can people reach you, Annie, and take your courses and reach out and yeah. get a consultation from you? Because like I said, man, I'm going to be on that list. Uh, I could listen yeah. to you all day. And how can people reach you? Yeah, I'd love them to come um, check out my website, Annie Lala, A-N-N-I-E-L-A-L-L-A, AnnieLala.com. I have a lot of free stuff. My husband invented the idea called Move the Free Line, which is basically the philosophy that as an online teacher, you give away as much of your best ideas for free. So I have tons of videos on my website and on my Facebook page and my YouTube channel. So I get every week I do a five to 10 minute video on some idea, but to take into a relationship and they're really popular. And I have a lot of articles and a love test you can take. So if you join my tribe and come on my list, I'll send these out weekly to you and you can, you'll hear about all my courses. I have three courses on my website that you can look at, but we're always creating new courses. And actually my husband and I are creating a whole suite of courses that are about reinvention and romantic relationship that are actually going to be free. We really want to create transformational experiences that are available to everyone. So if you join my list, at AnnieLala.com, you'll hear about these free courses that we're creating and you'll be invited and we'd love to have you and help you create a new career, reinvent your relationship and just create a life that you love because the more you love your life and yourself, the more amazing you're going to be in a relationship, whether it's romantic or with your kids or with your clients or your colleagues and friends. So it's really about what behavior, action, thought, feeling would have me fall most in love with myself and my life. How do I figure that out? And this is where I work on clients to help them build their self-esteem so that they love who they are and how they're acting in the world and they love their life. And then you'll be better in relationship. And actually you invite, if you're single, the single people that I coach, I'm always trying to help them raise their self-esteem because if you want to know where someone's self-esteem is, you just look at who they're dating or who they're married to. So that the trick is to raise your self-esteem so that who you attract is the highest caliber mate. Great advice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. And you are doing such an amazing job for people. And I know that you're bringing people together and teaching love or, mm -hmm. oh man, I, I just love this kind of stuff. And, and I know that a lot of my listeners, all my listeners are going to look you up and get your free stuff. I'm joining your tribe. Great, great. <laughs> we got lots of free stuff there. Check it out. And I love to take questions. And it was such a pleasure to talk with you today, Paul, and hopefully everyone got value. I'm sure they did. Thank you so much, Annie. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 